You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah first must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so when I was a child, my brother and I joined some family friends and to go stargazing. And I know what you're thinking. We kept it pretty tough in the Simus home. I know. So I don't remember a lot about this trip, but I do remember uh, that we went up into the mountains, deep into the mountains. This is, I'm told, uh, where you have to go to be able to really see the brilliance of the night sky, away from all the city lights, away from all of what's called light pollution. And as we were there, there was this process of waiting, which probably wasn't very long, but for children, it seemed like forever. A period of time where our eyes had to adjust, they had to acclimate, they had to be weaned off all of the artificial light that we had been so, become so accustomed to. And so there we waited until things were really dark, until literally you couldn't see your own hand in front of your face. And I'll never forget walking out into this big clearing and looking up and seeing the sky for what it truly is for the very first time. Now, this is a sky that I knew was there all along. This is a sky I'd heard of. This is a sky that I had personally seen hundreds of times, but I'd just never truly seen and experienced. And there on that mountain, that the veil was, was pulled back so that I and my brother and others could see what all of the artificial light had been concealing for years. I got to see the night sky in all of its glory. And I believe this is really the essence of the transfiguration, what we're seeing here in Mark. What we see here in Mark 9 on this mountaintop is the veil being pulled back for the disciples and subsequently the veil being pulled back for us today, the 21st century reader, in order to behold the glory of God and his kingdom that is found in Jesus Christ. What we're reading of this morning is a glimpse into the reality of God and a glimpse into the world as God has intended for us to experience, calling us to be aware, calling us to be awake 
to the glory of God. Now, what we see here is a glory that has always existed. This is the eternal, glorious God, and yet, this is a glory that has been concealed to the eyes of men. We'll sing later on this morning in the famous hymn, Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. Thy glory may not see. Today, you may find yourself in a place saying, man, I desperately want to see God. I want to see God present in my life. I want to see God present and at work in this world and in my family and in my community. I'm looking. I'm literally looking, but I don't see him. Many of us join the psalmist as he prays to God, you've said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek? Hide not your face from me. The psalmist is essentially praying. He's praying, Lord, you've said to seek your face. I'm seeking your face, but it seems like you're hiding. I'm looking, and I don't see. So the question that we need to consider this morning is this. Is it that the light of Christ has grown dim? Or is it that our eyes have missed him? In other words, is the problem with the brilliance of Jesus or is the problem with our ability to perceive him? And I think the scriptures would make it wildly clear and even our, our own experience would support this, that God is always present and God is always glorious, but we are not always present to God. And we are not always attuned to his glory. And so the question is why? Why is this our experience, if not every one of our experience? Well, one author suggests this. Western culture today is so powerful and alluring that it often swallows us whole. Its beauty, power, and promise generally take away both our breath and our perspective. The allure of present salvation, money, sex, creativity, the good life, has for the most part entertained, amused, distracted and numbed us into a state where we no longer have a perspective beyond that of our culture and its short-range salvation, where talk and concern centers around money, food, entertainment, sports, sex, and health. There is a little sense that the earth is ablaze with the fire of God and even less of a sense that one should have his shoes off before it. We have very little sense of an earth ablaze with the glory of God. Like the result of the lights of the city, like the result of of what is called light pollution, we have been blinded. And yet the transfiguration is good news. The transfiguration is proof that God is gracious to break through our sinful blindedness. God is gracious to overcome all of our distraction and to once again reveal himself to us. Today, just like the disciples in the first century, we need a vision of God that is found in Jesus Christ. And what we see here in Mark shows us how we can, how we today can be awakened to the reality of God and the reality of his kingdom, despite how blind to it we may feel today. And so if you're taking notes, what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at this passage under three headings. We're gonna look at the vision, the voice, and the valley. Let's look first at the vision. Look with me in verses two through four. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. 
and he was transfigured before them. And his eyes, I'm sorry, and his clothes, rather, became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, there's a lot going on in this scene. But let's begin here. All throughout the scriptures, the glory of God is almost always presented as a shining brilliance, a blinding light, the Shekinah glory of God, so bright that even angels that are themselves sinless have to cover their eyes in the presence of God, covering their faces in the midst of such holiness. But now, what Mark is showing us, this brilliance, this Glory, this blinding light, this radiance is now found in Jesus. Now, many, many years before Mark, the Bible tells us of another mountain where God appears and he appears in his radiant glory. Exodus records this for us. Exodus 33, Moses said, please show me your glory. What a request. God, I want to see you. And the Lord said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. I'll I'll cause my goodness to pass before you, but you can't gaze upon my glory directly because you will die. And so God, Exodus tells us, brings him up on this high mountain. He hides him in the cleft of the rock and he passes before him, but he passes so that only he can see his backside. And even this experience, not even seeing the glory of God directly, causes Moses to quite literally glow. Like he's radioactive. He's he's radiating from being in the presence of the glory of God so much so that when he comes down off the mountain, he doesn't recognize that the people are in terror because the guy is glowing. And he has to, for the rest of his life, wear a veil over his face because of his exposure, his indirect exposure to the glory of God. Moses reflected the glory of God. He reflects the brilliance of God in a similar way as the moon reflects the light of the sun. It it casts light on the earth. It shines light, and yet it's not the source of the light. It's simply a reflection. But in Jesus, Mark is showing us, we see something greater. Jesus is not the reflection of the glory of God. Jesus himself is the source of this glory. Now, the presence of Elijah, the presence of Moses means something significant. They're not just there, and they're like, oh, look who the cat dragged in. Like, Moses and Elijah, what what are we doing here? There's something significant going on here. Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. Together, they represent the revelation of God. Thus far, the sort of end-all, be-all of the vision and revelation of God to humanity, the law and the prophets. These are significant figures and they represent something very, very significant. Each pointed to God. But then something shifts. Something is changing in history. Something is changing in the way that God reveals himself to humanity. There is something now that outshines them all, that outshines Moses, that outshines Elijah and his name is Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews would put it this way. Long ago, and many times, you can bring that back up, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, not just a reflection, the source of glory himself. This is who we have in Jesus Christ. So what this tells us and what this scene represents is that the glory is not found in the law. And the glory is not found in the prophets. The glory, the light is found in Christ. And as we look at Jesus, as you look at Jesus, what it means is that we are beholding the glory of God in a way that does not burden us like the law and does not condemn us like the prophets. And as even as Moses' face does not destroy us like on Mount Sinai, But in God's grace, now this glory heals and transforms us. This word transfiguration appears only a few times in the New Testament, four, I believe. And two of those four times are not in reference to Jesus' transfiguration. Two of those four times are actually in reference to the transformation that God brings about in us. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. He said, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, transfigured, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The glory that would destroy you if you stepped into its presence is now the same glory that transforms you from one degree of glory to the next. Amen? You guys with me this morning? doesn't get better than the glory of God. I'm telling you right now. It's the best I got. (laughs) The voice. Secondly, verses five through six, and Peter said to his, uh, said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did uh, did not know what to say for they were, for he was, for they were terrified. Sorry, I'm tripping up on my words this morning. So Moses is, or Peter, should we just start over? Let's just start over. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. So Peter said to Jesus, thank you for your grace and patience. Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, for us, this reaction of Peter seems pretty absurd. <laughs> It's as if he's like, Jesus, this is a very special moment. Let's commemorate it by camping. <laughs> what, what would top off this moment? Quite like a little bit of like camping and, and tents. What's Peter doing? What's he, what's he proposing? And th- there's a lot of mystery here to this reaction, but I want to propose a few things here. First, what it seems that Peter is trying to do is he's trying to contain this moment. He's trying to preserve this moment. In the days of Moses, God chose to dwell with humanity in a tabernacle. The tabernacle was a moving temple tent that moved with the children of Israel as they passed through the wilderness. As you follow throughout the Bible, we read that Israel settled in the land. They began to build their cities. They commissioned kings against God's will, and they even erected this huge, ornate temple to God. And the idea was, God, this is your upgrade You said you wanted a a, a tabernacle, you wanted a tent, we're going to give you a temple. The idea, it seems, was that God was best contained. 
Because, here's the logic, if God is with us, we prosper. So let's manage his presence. Let's allure his presence. Let's make sure that we contain God's presence with us so that we can be blessed, so we can prosper as God's people. I think this is what Peter is saying. Let's prolong this moment. This is good. This is a true mountaintop experience. Let's capture it. Let's, let's, let's contain and camp out in this moment forever. But it's very clear as we read through scriptures that God never intended to dwell within temples built by human hands forever. And even the highest heavens can't contain the presence of God. He can't be contained. The vision from the very beginning was that humanity was to take the, the, the garden temple, Eden, and to spread it into the world, to Edenize the world. So that the glory of God would fill the world. That's what the angels declare. Holy, holy, holy for the whole earth is full of your glory. Not contained in one place, but spread out into the whole entire world. On the day of Jesus' crucifixion, the gospel writers record that as Jesus is literally breathing his last breath, it pans out and it brings us to a different scene in the temple. And the gospel writers record that in the temple, the curtain, the veil that divided the presence of God and the, the presence of people, at the moment of Christ's death, that, that curtain, that separation tore from top to bottom. And, and it represented not only now can we approach the presence of Jesus Christ uh, through, uh, to God through Jesus Christ, but more importantly, the presence of God through Jesus Christ was now breaking out into the world in an extremely unique way, a world set ablaze with the sacred fire of God. Secondly, what Peter is attempting to do, something I think we all attempt to do at, at times, is to make three tents. Did you catch that? Let's make three tents. Let's make three temples of worship, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, Moses and Elijah may mean very little to you, so today it may sound something like this. Let's make three tents, Jesus, one for you, one for my job, and one for my financial security. Or, Jesus, this is a good moment. Let me make three tents, one for you, Jesus, one for my country, and one for my children. Or let me make three tents, one for you, Jesus, one for my education, and one for my future. Or let's make three tents, one for you, Jesus, one for my romantic relationships, and one for my social status. Fill in the blank. Why do we fail to see the light of God in Christ? Because our worship is divided. And therefore, our perspective is skewed. Because daily we are building multiple temples. Daily we are living out what Peter had the guts to articulate. Let me build these multiple places of worship. And yet the Bible tells us that God will not share his glory with another. Mark continues, and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Give him audience. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but with them but Jesus only. When the cloud settles, who is left? Jesus. Not Elijah. Not Moses. Jesus. When the cloud settles, what is left? Not religion. Not your job. Not your country. Not your lover. 
not your children. Jesus. When the cloud settles, it's Jesus. And therefore, he alone deserves your worship. He alone deserves your devotion. He alone deserves your life. Jesus only. This is my, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Focus on him. Give him your everything. Thirdly, Peter has a very religious sort of works-based impulse. So here's the question. What, do you, what are you to do when you find yourselves in Peter's position here, in the presence of a holy, glorious God? The Bible tells us that angels sing, mountains tremble, the 24 elders of Revelation fall down on their faces. But isn't this interesting? Peter thinks that his immediate response to the glory and wonder of Jesus Christ must be to work, to build something, to offer God something back. I find it interesting that the vision ceases. There's just this moment of glory and light, and then it vanishes immediately after Peter's request. What's going on here? I think what's going on here is that when we stand before the glorious presence of God, preoccupied with ourselves, and really preoccupied with what we contribute back to God, we lose sight of the brilliance of God. When we approach God with this sort of works-based mentality, the vision ceases. Why? Because a God that we must constantly appease is not very glorious. Yes, we work for God. Yes, we are motivated by the goodness and the glory of God to invest ourselves in the kingdom. We are going broke here for the kingdom of God. I hope they told you that. I mean, we're putting all our chips in on Christ. And yes, we work in response to the glory and goodness of God. But for many of us, we are responding this morning and throughout our Christian life very similar to what we see here in Peter. We have this impulse to work and to do and to earn our keep based on fear. There's a fear, a terror that is embedded in Peter's soul. A fear that an understanding of the law of God without an understanding of the grace of God will always create within us. That leads us to revert back to always trying to appease God. Listen, God does not say, this is my beloved son. Now go get busy. He doesn't say, this is my beloved son. Now go work your fingers down to the bone. God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Friend, I think you need to hear this. This, this is my best I have to give to the world. Listen. Jesus is God's good word of love and rest to a weary and hurting world. Jesus is God's word of grace and truth. Jesus is God's word of kindness and healing. Jesus is God's word to be received by faith, with gratitude and joy. See, this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not what we have to offer to God. The gospel is what God has offered to us in Jesus Christ. At the end of our lives, we're not going to come with a list of all the things we've done for God and say, look, accept me. At the end of our lives, we will show up before the presence of God's grace with open hands, ready to receive all that God has given to us. 
to receive his life, to receive his joy, to receive his forgiveness, to receive his power, to receive, to listen. Now, before we get to our final point, there's a very important link between the vision and the voice. And this is what I believe that the link is, that we become more aware of the presence of God in our lives, and we become more aware of the presence of God at work in the world to that sacred fire of God as we listen to the voice of God. Let me, let me say it simply. We listen to look. One of the things I hear quite a bit from the church is are statements like this. I, I want to see God. I want to see God at work in, in my life. I, what believer doesn't? I want to get it. I want to catch a glimpse of the glory of God. Like Moses, let me see your glory. The Bible tells me I need to fix my eyes on on God. So the question I always get is like, so where am I supposed to look? How would you answer that? The Bible tells tells me I'm supposed to look to God. I'm beholding his glory. Where am I looking? We're getting there. Where am I supposed to look? When Moses asks to see God's glory, there's an interesting twist to God's appearing. Back in Exodus 33, Moses says, let me see your glory. And the Lord said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So catch this. Moses says, I want to see you. And God says, okay, I'm going to speak to you. God, I want to to behold you. And the Lord says, you will see my glory in the hearing of my name and in the pronouncement of my character. We are obsessed with the idea that faith comes by seeing. I got to see it to believe it. The Bible is constantly moving us in a different direction. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Moses, let me see your glory. And God says, okay, I will speak my name. What happened on Mount Transfiguration? Jesus appears in splendor and glory, vibrant, shining like the sun. I love Mark's note, brighter than any bleach. (laughs) Thank you, Mark. I, I never would have imagined the scene without that note. And yet the voice of God does not say, this is my beloved son, look at him, look at him. God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. How do we catch a glimpse of the glory of God in Christ? How do we awaken to a world that is ablaze with the sacred fire of God? We listen to look. We put our ear down to the word. We tune our hearts to the word of God that is Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul put it this way. The light is the gospel of the glory of Christ. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you want to see the brilliance? 
Do you want to be blinded by the light? Do you want to be like Moses, radiating and glowing, like radioactive Christians walking around in the community? Because if you're exposure to the presence of God, we're just told that we need to stare deep into the gospel. Can I get an amen? Thank you. We stare deep into the gospel. The good news that God himself, our creator, loves us and has come to rescue us from sin and Satan and death and hell, to renew all things, to deliver us into his kingdom through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And who has promised us that he will return for his bride, the church, and he has given us his Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to transform us, and to empower us to live for his glory. Stare deep into those, that good news, and our face will shine, and our lives will change. We see the vision, we see the voice. Let's look lastly at the valley. Now, there is a portion of Mark right here that doesn't really, didn't really seem to fit in anywhere. Okay? It doesn't really seem to fit in with transfiguration. It doesn't really seem to fit in with the next scene where Jesus heals the, the, the young boy who's uh, demon-possessed. But the more I read this, the more I prayed through this, the more I actually began to see that this last portion uh, that we're going to look at this morning actually has a lot to do with the Mount of Transfiguration. So look at me in verses 9 through 13. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it's written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Okay, so the disciples have their own vision of the way things are supposed to be, just like all of us. And their vision of renewal, their vision of redemption, was a vision of triumph, of power, of light, and might. And this is how they've interpreted what they've just witnessed on the mountain. They believe that what they just saw fits into their plan and their vision of how God is going to renew all things. And so what they do is they begin to reference, in fact, they begin to argue with Jesus. And they begin to reference Old Testament prophets like Malachi, who prophesies that when Elijah appears, then it's going to be the beginning of the great and awesome day of God. When, when Elijah appears, the kingdom's going to come in glory and triumph. And they're saying, Jesus, that was Elijah. In light. So... It's happening, right? Like, this is the moment that we've all been waiting for. And Jesus is saying, in a sense, yes, it is happening. The glory, the moment of the glory and the triumph is at hand. You're right. But it's not going to happen how you expected it. Because Elijah has already come, referring to John the Baptist, the one who prepares the way. And I got news for you. They killed him. 
This is how he prepares the way of the Lord, a suffering forerunner for a suffering king. And he takes their logic and he twists it on them. And he says, yeah, you're right. Let's, let's consider some of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Let's not forget the prophecies that the Messiah will triumph, but elsewhere how it's written that the Messiah will triumph through sacrifice and suffering, like Isaiah 53. Jesus is essentially saying, don't you see, my glory isn't displayed how you expect it. My glory is not going to appear how you're expecting to see my glory. In fact, the longer that you keep looking for whatever it is you're looking for, the more you're going to miss it. The more you keep placing your expectations on the way I'm to work and the way I'm to act and the way I'm to appear in your life and the world, the more you're going to miss me. My glory is displayed through obscurity. My glory is displayed through sacrifice. And my glory is even displayed through seeming defeat. This is how I will redeem you. This is how I'm going to renew all things. This will be the means through which I conquer evil and renew the world through my death and my resurrection. And what Jesus is now alluding to is the next mountain. The next significant mountain where the glory of God will be put on full display forever. But it won't be Mount Transfiguration. It'll be Calvary. It'll be Golgotha, where Christ sheds his blood for the sins and redemption of the world. What Jesus is saying is, I'm preparing you for when the true glory is revealed. But, unless, but as long as you keep placing your expectations on it, you're going to miss it completely. What we see here in Mark 9 is that mountaintop experiences may be great, but they're, they're not everything. We all long for the mountaintop experience. None of us would pass on that. But the Bible tells us that the mountaintop experience is not everything. The mountain is where we get the vision of God's brilliance. But, and this is where this next scene fits into the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus waits until they descended into the valley. The valley of dryness, the valley of ordinary, the valley of pain before he begins to reveal himself to the disciples in a profound way, before he reveals the glory of his cross. This is what the, the old Puritans used to refer to as the valley of vision, where he leads his disciples down into the valley to truly see Jesus for who he is. To see Jesus, to see that the, 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 the Jesus that was transfigured on the mountain is the same Jesus that suffers and is with us in the valley. So this morning, you may find yourself in the valley today. And that may mean a number of things. It may mean that things, your Christianity just doesn't feel very extraordinary lately. You're waiting for the bells and whistles. You're waiting for the transfiguration. You're waiting for the lights and the glory and the beams of radiance. And yet, it's not feeling very extraordinary. And you're beginning to feel disillusioned. For some of you, that means that you're hanging on to the memory of a mountaintop experience, but you're not sure how long that memory is going to sustain your faith. There was that moment years ago or decades ago where you really, truly felt the presence of God. You saw God at work in your life, and you've been hanging on to that moment, but you're to that point where you're realizing that the memory is fading, and you're not sure how long it's going to last. Or for some of you, you've heard the rumors of Jesus, and so you're here today still waiting to see yourself. We long for those mountaintop experiences all the while that Jesus is meeting us in the valley. 
And so the question I, I want us to consider this morning is, will we be open to meet him there? Will we be open to meet Jesus in the ordinary, in the difficult, and even in the painful moments of life? Will we be open to see him there and to hear his voice there and to see the obscured and concealed yet beautiful glory of Christ in the ordinary? What I want to do is I want to close our time with an excerpt from the Valley of Vision, a prayer that saints have prayed For many, many generations, this will be our closing prayer before we go into our time of communion. You can just follow along, uh, reading this prayer, agreeing in your hearts. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, In the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.